0: we are continuing our study in the book of Hebrews, and we are finishing up chapter nine this morning talking about some very strange things. This is a really disorienting text for modern audiences to read, and so I just want to acknowledge that, that it's very kind of like Um, It feels very distant. It feels from a different era. It feels like maybe even, is this super relevant for us today? And so I am going to say yes, and it's never been more relevant for our culture, and I'll talk to you a little bit about why after we've read it. But you can flip with me to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, which is verse 28. Verse 28. Therefore, since it is not, or therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these... For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, you show us who you are in it. You show us who we are. And we see a beautiful picture of your son this morning. As we were reminded earlier in the catechism, your son who stands between us and you, a holy and just God. And so, Lord, I ask that um, That the urgency of this text would sit with us this morning. That the weight of immortality would sink in. God, I know that we have trouble believing that our inheritance is really worth it. And so God, I ask this morning that you would help us to believe. That you would show us, even if it's just a glimpse of all of the wonderful things that you have in store for us through your son. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. There's a dead squirrel this morning out in the flower bed of the church. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I wasn't planning to open the sermon that way, but there it is, (laughs) talking about death and there's a dead squirrel felt too good to be true. Funny thing about death in general, and specifically about this dead squirrel, is that no one really wants to deal with it. It's like lots of people would say that there's a dead squirrel, but who will remove the dead squirrel? Well, it ended up being one Stephen Parnell, who's also down in Portico Kids, so if you see him, you can thank him for doing that. Here is why we don't like dead things because it stinks, I won't go into all of the details that were passed on to me about the state of the squirrel, but let's just say it wasn't pleasant to look at or smell. There's something repulsive about death. We, in our culture, like to kind of send people away out of sight, out of mind to die, probably more than any time in human history we live in a state of complete denial of our death. Blaise Pascal, Pascal, an old French philosopher, he put the human condition in this picture. It's like a bunch of convicts who are sentenced to the death penalty, chained together, waiting for the call of the executioner, looking at each other, when the executioner calls somebody's name. That's the human condition. It's pretty accurate, hard to argue with. But that's not how we think about death in our culture. The media that we consume, it talks about death plenty, but what kind of death? It's like exotic death. It's death that happens in freak accidents or crazy diseases, or in military battles that seem very far away, or in murders that happen very seldomly. We don't see in our media ordinary, brutal, ugly death. And yet it's a reality. It's a reality that comes for all of us. Before we talk about death today, in the text, you see it a bunch. But before it talks about death, we have to understand life as God understands it, as he was trying to teach the Israelites of how he understood their lives as their creator. And so we're going to talk today, this morning, about life first, death second, and then judgment at the end. So let's talk about life and see in the text what frames life. And from the very beginning, and we talked about this already a little bit, so we're not going to go into it too much, but you see that life from the biblical perspective is framed by this idea of covenant. And in the 15th verse, it says, therefore he, being Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. And so covenant is kind of this controlling reality of our lives. And it actually is not first seen in the Bible. The Bible and God graciously uses something that already existed in the relations of nation states to communicate how he is relating to his people. So he's using this concept of covenant or treaty and the the ancient treaties are called suzerian vassal treaties. So you have a suzerian who's like the Lord. He's like the, the big boss. And then you have the vassals who are like little tiny villages, maybe smaller kingdoms that would make treaties with these bigger kingdoms for protection. And then they would pledge their allegiance to this bigger kingdom, their suzerian. And so there's a power differential that existed in these treaties. And the treaties all kind of had the same format and formula. And you see this even in Exodus 20. You also see this reflected in the structure of Deuteronomy. So God is like showing the Israelites, this is what's happening here. I am the Caesarian and you are the vassal. So he's establishing the power differential. And so what would happen in the ancient world is that you had to enforce this treaty somehow. Otherwise, it's no good. If you can't trust that the other party is going to uphold to their end of the deal, then you might as well not do it in the first place. And so here's what they would do to make sure that the agreement was held to by both parties. They would take animals, and they cut them in half. And then usually the vassal would have to walk through the animals, and the suzerain would watch them walk through it. So the powerful one would watch them go through the animals. And it's basically a way of saying, if I break the treaty, this is what will happen to me. And so you see this, that the author of of Hebrews is picking up on this, um, this framework for understanding life in relationship to God because he's saying that these covenants, these testaments, these wills, they only go into effect with blood because that's how they worked. And so specifically this morning, it's, we're not just looking at covenants in general to understand what God's trying to say. He's actually referencing specific covenants that he made with the people. The first being is with Adam, with Adam and Eve in the garden. This first covenant, do this and live, but if you eat of that one tree, then you will die. So there is a threat of death, the pain of death involved. And of course, we know what happened. Adam disobeyed. Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one tree they couldn't eat. And basically said, okay, we reject you as our Caesarean. And we actually have made a treaty with a new Caesarean. Because the serpent was there telling them, go ahead and eat. I'm a better God. Serve me. Don't serve him. And a death happened. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But Adam and Eve weren't killed right then and there, were they? They were covered with animal skins. So God established this pattern of substituting and covering over the death of his people for the death of another. The animal died, not Adam and Eve. You see the same theme expressed in how God made his covenant with Abraham, and this is the more explicitly Caesarean vassal treaty that we get in all of Scripture. If you guys remember it, Adam or Abraham excuse me, has gotten up and left, and God is saying to him, I will bless you and make of you a great nation. And out of your descendants, all of the nations will be blessed. He's going to give him a land. He's going to give him a people. He's going to give him a kingdom. And so he tells Abraham, go and collect all the animals so that we can establish this covenant and cut them in half. And Abraham does. And then do you remember what happened? God causes Abraham to go to sleep. We don't really know what that means. But he suspends Abraham and doesn't have Abraham pass through. Abraham's the vassal, it's his job to pass through. It's his job to say, "If I break this, then bring death upon me just like these animals." But instead, the image of God expressed in this flaming pot, smoking pot, passes through the animals. So the presence of God, the if, remember the power differential, the powerful person in this relationship. He is the one who ends up passing through the pieces. And it's as if God is saying, when you are unfaithful, I will cover your penalty. I will take the hit. And then you see it reflected also in Moses. And this is where the text goes explicitly today, is he says that all of these things, all of the elements of the covenant with Moses were sprinkled with blood, but it wasn't the blood of the guilty party. It was the blood of animals. It was pointing to the fulfillment of that original promise made to Abraham, saying that God will provide. He will provide the one whose blood will pay for the sins of the world. So you see Adam, Abraham, Moses, they all lived their lives in this covenantal framework. And we do too. This is the new covenant that Jesus is the mediator of. And before we talk about death, we have to talk about the new covenant as an objective reality Of life. It is capital T truth. And we have to talk about it because in our culture, religion and faith are often put into the category of subjectivity. It's like, well, if you believe that, then that's good for you. And if I believe it, then I'm playing by a different set of rules. And so reality is subjective and truth becomes fragmented. But that's not how this works because what we are actually saying is that this is the creator of the universe making these treaties making this covenant with us and so to ignore or to set aside the reality of the covenant is basically to ignore or set aside the law of gravity this is the governing authority of the spiritual world this reality of covenant. And what it's saying, if we listen closely to this text, is that you stand condemned. You are a covenant breaker. And this is why, verse 27 says, it's appointed for every man, just says man, but every man and woman to die once, and then comes judgment. So the reality of death is explained in the Christian worldview by the problem of sin. The wages of sin is death. And so you can see that every single person who has died has not died just arbitrarily, We can actually know why people die. It's because people sin. It's because the infection of sin brings death. And isn't that Satan's plan? Isn't that what he wants to do from the very beginning as he goes into the garden? He is trying to create his own kingdom. He is trying to take out the subjects of God's kingdom and pull them into his own kingdom. This is why he tempts Adam and Eve because he wants death to reign. He wants to undo all of the good that the life-giving God has done. And it looks like he's incredibly successful. If we just look at this world, he's incredibly successful. Everyone dies. No one is escaping without dying. And then this is why ultimately Jesus' death is so extraordinary. Because if you zoom out and remember and think about who Jesus is for a minute, he's sinless. He is the only human who passes the test of life undefiled by sin, perfect obedience in everything that he did, said, and thought. Perfectly loving God, perfectly loving his fellow man. By identifying with his people, Jesus, the God man, takes on our nature. But he died as a covenant breaker. He died. And so for that moment, Everything was brought into question about Jesus' life. Everything was questioned because he died. Well, if he died, he must have sinned. But this is again where it's extraordinary. It's because even though at that moment it appeared that Satan won, Colossians tells us something else. Colossians 2.13 says, you, talking about us, we're dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, basically being a covenant breaker. God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What else did it do? It disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So you see, the substitutionary death of Jesus, Jesus dying in place of his people, him identifying with the sinful people, and then being the payment, being the blood that was spilled to satisfy the covenant— And dying, subjecting himself to death, the weaponry of Satan is the very thing that was used to put Satan to open shame. God, through the work of Christ, tells Satan, you can do whatever you want and you will still lose. You can have my son, but you cannot defile him he will remain faithful. And through him, he will have faithful offspring. This is what the author of Hebrews is showing us. Jesus, the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. Jesus, the offspring of Abraham that fulfilled the work and therefore got the reward promised. Faithful offspring that bless the nations. And his name, in his name, all would be blessed. But death isn't the end. This is again shown to us in verses 27 and 28. Death is not the end. And it's not the end because the death of Christ, the blood that he spilled, it did forgive sins. And this is a huge part of the Christian faith. It's something that is very familiar to you. It's that the death of Jesus is the mechanism by which your sins are forgiven. But sometimes we stop there and we almost think of it as like, oh, okay, our sins being forgiven is kind of like God just kind of waving a magic wand and saying like, oh, no, you're good now. You don't have to worry about that. But that's not how forgiveness actually works. I'm gonna give you a couple of examples of what forgiveness actually looks like. The first is very recent, right? I think that, I don't know if this is happening yet, so forgive me, but student loans are forgiven. So does that just mean like, oh, okay, it's just magic and it goes away? No, that's not how it works. Like that money still gets paid for. So there's an absorbing that happens in forgiveness, You don't have to pay, we will pay for you, right? So this is what Jesus' death is doing. You don't have to pay, but I will. Another example, is a little bit lighter, comes from my childhood. I was playing with one of my childhood friends in his backyard, and we were playing football in his backyard, I was probably like seven or eight, and I was kicking off, we were doing like kick return, so I would kick to him and then he would run it back and I'd tackle him, that kind of thing. I got a really good kickoff and it went over his head and right through a window that was closed. And I was like, oh, that's a broken window. I can't fix that. So seven-year-old Nate decided to run home without saying anything or doing anything. I just ran straight home. Now, there's a couple of different ways that you know, my friend's dad could have handled that. He could have like, come after me and like gone to my house and had my parents pay for me, but that's not what forgiveness is. He would have been looking to get even or having what was owed to him restored. Nothing wrong with that. He would have been completely within his rights to do that. But instead, what he did is he just fixed the window And I was like, I'm never going over to that house again. That was in my mind. I was like, it's done, relationship over, friendship done. (laughs) The problem was is that I had to walk by the house on my way to school every morning. And so I would try and like sneak by. But uh, my friend's dad, he's a really good guy. And he like knew what was going on and made it a point to go out there and kind of like hunt me down and bring me over. And he's like, hey, I fixed the window, man. No big deal. Like, you don't have to run away. That is a picture of forgiveness. He still had to pay for new glass. He still had to do the work of patching the window. But he absorbed it. And he absorbed it for the purpose of maintaining the relationship between me and him and me and his son. And so this is a picture of what it means that Christ has died and what it means in verse 22 where it says, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin because someone had to die. Someone had to pay. And it was Jesus. So our sins are forgiven, which means that we face the end. We face what death leads to in a very different way. Status. We're going to talk about judgment. Death leads to judgment. It would be one thing if death was just the end. If it was like, okay, we all just die and then there's nothingness. It would be pretty depressing, but there wouldn't be any great urgency. The framework of covenant wouldn't really matter that much. Because like, oh, okay, well, everybody dies. So we'll just die and go to nothingness. Therefore, it doesn't really matter what we do because we just will go into nothingness. But the one who appointed man to die also appointed that after that death would come judgment. And this judgment will be ultimate. It'll be final, and it will be eternal. And so for those, and again, this is addressed, if you look in verse 15, it's addressed to those who are called, and then later, it's the ones who are eagerly waiting for the return of Christ that this is addressed to. So we are getting what it looks like to live under the shelter of Jesus's judgment, but outside of Jesus' judgment, you have to pay. And if that feels harsh, if that feels a little bit outdated, then I would just challenge you this morning that maybe you have something to learn, that maybe your understanding of the world and of life is not nearly big enough because you're not actually reckoning with the reality of your death. Because if you don't really think or don't acknowledge or don't believe that you are going to die, that this is coming, that this day is coming soon, then there's no reason to worry about an inheritance. There's no reason to worry about what am I inheriting. There's no reason to worry about judgment. But think about it, we all die. And there's not another worldview that accounts for death like this. There's no other explanation that is offered. Why do people die? Because they get old, why do they get old? Because time keeps going by. Yeah, but why does that lead to decay? Why does that produce death? Why does disease destroy our physical bodies? We've just learned it all entered in through sin. It's the reign of Satan breaking in to this earth and stealing people out of it, uncreating. And the beautiful thing about the death of Jesus, the beautiful thing about how God works, remember back to that first principle of the Caesarian vassal treaty, He is adopting this form to make himself understandable to creatures. He's saying, here's something that you do. I'm going to use it and communicate my love to you through it. And so it's understandable to all. He doesn't hide this. He doesn't put the death of Jesus and the resurrection under a veil. It happens in public. And this is the call of the Christian church to proclaim the death of Jesus for sinners, the resurrection of Christ for eternal life to the world, to make it knowable so that you might receive it, so that you might rest in it, believe it, and that the spirit of God would dwell in you and help you to eagerly wait for him. And all of that's beautiful and great, but listen to this. Because this is the good part. Forgiveness of sins is awesome because it leads to this. It leads to just as we are appointed to die, Jesus was appointed to die. But he's coming back. It's also appointed that he will appear a second time. Having already dealt with sin, he comes to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In other words, he comes to be reunited with his people. He comes bringing his kingdom. And this, again, this seems abstract. So I'm gonna give you this picture. I'm gonna try and make it through. (laughs) The picture of what it means that Jesus comes back is a picture of reconciliation and fulfillment. Every day, Monday through Friday, right now, we're going to pick up our daughter from school. And she's little, she's in kindergarten. And all of the families of these kindergartners are standing in like, the pickup spot, and the kindergartners have to walk kind of across the schoolyard to get to us. And not just my daughter, but my daughter included, They're kind of walking, and then they look, and they see their parents waiting. They start skipping. Then they get a little closer. There's a big smile, and they start sprinting. And they jump into the arms of their parents. The joy of being reunited with their parent just completely overtakes them, and that's all they know. I know <clears throat> I know this because every day when we pick up our daughter she tells us how great her day has been and so I was like oh it's great but then the other day she said you know sometimes when I tell you that my day is great I'm just kidding and that's her like language because I'm just so happy to see you <laughs> Even though her day wasn't great, the joy of reconciliation overwhelms that sorrow. I was thinking about this. This is just a tiny little picture described by a five-year-old about what it means that Jesus will come back and he will save us. That is what is offered to you this morning. That's what is offered to you in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, to have that, to wait for him. And so, friends, your inheritance, what is coming for you, is so worth it. I know sometimes when we read the Bible, I'm this way too, when it talks about in 1 Peter, let me read that just really quick because it talks about what our inheritance is. It's an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's like, okay, but this life's hard. That doesn't really seem to help me with an uncertain job market. That doesn't really seem to help me with inflation. That doesn't seem to help me with my body that is perishing. And so what good is it? And the author of Hebrews is telling us, look to your death and look beyond it. Because this is temporary. And the beauty, the wonder, the pleasure of the kingdom of God coming and Jesus welcoming you into it is so much more than all of that. One day soon, you and I will see the body that died for us. We will see Jesus. We'll be face to face. (laughs) And we'll start skipping. And then we'll start running. And we'll be reunited to him, who is the originator of all of our love. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, <laughs> that you want us to know in power your love for us, your people. And so God, I ask that this morning that we would um, that we'd be transformed by your love, that you would help us to eagerly wait for your coming, that we would look forward to it, that it would be the light that we live by, And Lord, just like someone who is preparing for a wonderful vacation, that we wouldn't just sit and watch the clock, but that we would indeed make preparations for your return by loving one another, by serving each other, by feeding the hungry among us, by giving drink to the thirsty among us, by going to the least of these Lord, and by proclaiming and demonstrating your love for your people. God, help us to make our lives in this world a little bit more like your kingdom while we wait, and God, help our hearts to endure, to persevere as we eagerly wait for you, We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.